0: morning. If you would, open up in your Bibles to uh, the book of Hosea, chapter 10. The title of this morning's message is, I've Always Hated Long Division. Um, So as a kid growing up, uh, I didn't like school, and I especially didn't like math class. It was the hardest class for me. And I remember as a little guy when they first introduced long division and I was like, what are we even doing right now? It was so confusing and I was so lost and I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm never going to like division. And I have found comfort in a fact that God hates division too. Only God doesn't hate division when it comes to numbers. God hates division when it comes to our hearts. Because God is searching to and fro for someone whose heart is completely devoted to him. And that's the subject we come to today in the book of Hosea. Uh, Just a little background on Hosea. Hosea is such a fascinating book because Hosea was a fascinating prophet. Hosea was tasked with doing something that that I don't think very many people could do apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. He was called to uh, be a prophet to the northern kingdom during the time of the divided kingdom, he was a prophet around the same time that Isaiah and Amos and Micah were prophets. They were prophesying in the southern kingdom. Isaiah, or, uh, uh, Hosea was prophesying in the northern kingdom shortly prior to Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians. But Hosea was even a very difficult task. He was told, I want you to go and I want you to marry a wife. And literally, in the Old King James, it says, marry a wife of whoredom. In other words, a wife that you know is going to cheat on you a wife that will ultimately sell herself uh, on the prostitution market. And so Hosea goes and he marries this woman. Her name was Gomer. And as he marries this woman, he starts to have kids. And they had the first kid, and the first kid they named Jezreel. The name Jezreel means cast away or cast off. They had a second kid. I'm going to have to look at it because I can't ever pronounce it without reading it. They had a second kid that they named Loruhama, which means not pitied. And they had a third kid who is named Loami Not my people. Now interestingly enough, the names of Hosea's kids actually tell the story of the nation of Israel, because the nation of Israel had been Jezreel, cast, all, cast away, because of Lohu Rama, they had no longer been pitied, because God would no longer show them pity, therefore they would be Loami, not my people. They're not acting like my people, therefore they are not my people. Well, after they had those three kids, Hosea started to notice something about his wife. He noticed she lingered lingered a little longer going to the market than she should have. He noticed that she was gone more than she should be, and just something was a little bit different about her. And then he remembered what God had to say. Marry a wife of harlotry. And pretty soon the rumors he found out were true. She had not only been cheating on him, but she had been selling herself to other men. And so God told Hosea to do something. He said, I need you to let her go in the same way that I am going to, for a time, have to let the nation of Israel go. Because if their heart won't be for me, then I'll give them exactly what they want. And that's all of the spiritual adultery that they've been looking for. Because you see, the nation of Israel had given themselves over to idolatry. And God equates idolatry to spiritual adultery. But you see, some time went by and Gomer found that she was no longer the woman that the men wanted, and she found herself in a difficult place. And so God told Hosea to do something very difficult. He said, Now I want you to go, and I want you to purchase your wife. And I want you to take her home, and I want you to clean her up, and I want you to love her. I want you to bring her back and make her your own again. Because that's what I'm going to do with the nation of Israel is I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to love them again. And that's exactly what Hosea did. And after all of that, Hosea's heart was now ready because he understood the heart of God for the nation of Israel. It was now ready for him to prophesy the difficult words that he would have to prophesy to the nation of Israel because for the rest of the book of Hosea, he's going to lay out exactly where they've been wrong and exactly how they need to return. And that's what he does in chapter 10. He points out where they've been wrong, and at the end, he's going to tell them how they can return. You see, the subject that we really want to deal with is a divided heart, as it says in verse 2. Let me read that to you again. Their heart is divided, and they are held guilty, and he will break down their altars, and he will ruin their sacred pillars. That word divided there means to be faithless, to be deceitful, to be false. Literally, it means to divide one's self and give a portion to another. We have a really fancy word for this in our culture today, and it's something that everybody tries to do. It's called multitasking, right? We want everything to multitask. I want my phone to multitask. I want my computer to multitask. I want everything to be able to multitask. You know what I found that I'm not very good at? Multitasking. You know what I found nobody's really good at? Multitasking. Now I know some of y'all ladies are in here are like, no, I'm a lady. I can multitask. No, you can't. Okay? Listen, you can, you can get mad at me later about this. I, had, I, t- I taught this at a chapel uh, here recently at Arc City Christian Academy. Now I did it on an age-appropriate scale. I left out some of the things I just said. But I said this, and I had a lady come up to me afterwards, and she said, I can't do And then walked away. I was like, okay, whatever. Maybe you can. But, but we're not very good at it. You know why? Because if I'm multitasking, I can't give 100% of myself to any one thing. And it's one thing when we multitask in the business world or the computer world. It's a whole other thing when we multi- multitask in the spiritual world. One of the commentaries that I read in preparation for this was called the Preacher's Commentary, written by a guy named Lloyd J. Ogilvie. And he recounted a story <clears throat> of a sermon that he had read. uh, A sermon by an old Scottish preacher named Arthur Gossip. Can we just take one quick moment and think about how terrible it is that you're a pastor and your last name is Gossip. That had to have been a really rough go for him. That has nothing to do with my message. Okay, so, uh, but the title of the sermon was this, and this is what Ogilvie points out in, in the preacher's commentary. The title of the sermon was The Thing That Christ Hates The Most. The Thing That Christ Hates The Most. And that is a divided heart. A heart whose loyalties are divided between God and all of the things of the world. And what he points out is that there's a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. He calls it a silent theme in Scripture. And the silent theme that runs through Scripture is the necessity of an undivided heart. So that's what I want to do for just a few minutes Because I want to follow that theme in about four different scriptures. Now, if you have time to turn there, great. If you don't, that's fine too. Just jot it down. I know some people aren't as good at navigating their Bibles. I would rather you hear what it has to say. But the first place I want you to go is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. It says this. Genesis two sixteen And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It's kind of interesting because the very first thing that God does when he creates man, he creates him sinlessly perfect, he puts him in a perfect place, but he gives him one thing. He gives him a choice. Now I've had people come to me before and say, Why did God create sin? Why would God have created sin? Why did he do that? And I always remind him, God did not create sin. God created free will. God created free will because God wants us to have a choice. You know why? Because God wants our love for him to not be robotic in nature. He wants it to be from an undivided, free, free will, freely giving heart. And so the very first thing that God told Adam that he wanted is he wanted Adam to have an undivided heart. Why? Because it wouldn't be any fun if Adam loved him out of robotic programming. You can imagine if you will, right? You find that special someone and you find the like me button, right? You push it right there in the back of their head, boop, like me. You're the greatest thing that's ever lived. You're always right. You're always funny. Sure, the first few weeks might be great, right? I like to be told I'm right. I like to be told I'm funny. But you know ultimately what we want? We want reality. we want to know that someone loves us because that's their desire, not because it's what they were programmed to do. So the very first thing that we see is that God created us innately with a need to love God with an undivided heart. Well, that theme continues on as we go to the book of Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, and I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. It says this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, God's desire for us is that we would love Him with our entire heart. It wasn't just a command in the beginning. It was God's covenant with His people. That they would love Him with their, all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength because He doesn't want us to be divided between loving Him and loving the things of the world. Again, I was teaching this to a group of kids at Ark City Christian Academy, and, and I said, now can you imagine, if you will, because there's some teenagers in the room, uh, at this place. I said, can you imagine if, if one of these teenagers, uh, one of these boys, starts to like one of these girls, and they become special friends. That's what I called a dating relationship when I was a youth pastor. I called them, oh, they're, they're special friends, right? They, they become special friends, right? And, and let's say that boy really likes that girl, but in a series of time, a little time passes, and the boy who's special friends with the girl starts to have his eye on another girl, and he starts to talk to this other girl while also talking to the girl that he's special friends with. You know what we call that? one of the little kids yelled out, multitasking! <laughs> Hit the nail on the head, right? Like I could have said it better myself. I'm It's like, not the word I was looking for, but that's way better than what I was looking for. Right? God doesn't want that with us, just like you wouldn't want that with your spouse. God wants us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. But lest we think this is just an Old Testament or even Old Covenant idea, go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 24. Jesus, in speaking to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, says this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, "...no one can serve two masters." For either he will hate the one and love the other, or, as, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. No one can serve two masters. Now, I don't know if there's any pet owners in the place, but we own dogs, right? We've owned several dogs throughout our married life, but there's only been one dog ever that has been my dog. And his name was Beck. Beck. And yes, Beck had two turntables and a microphone. Uh, that Now, okay, I've got some 90s kids in here, okay? Usually I tell that joke and everybody's like, sure he did. Anyway, uh, so, so Beck was my dog, right? So we brought him home. We got him. It was that like, hey, we've been married for a couple of years and we're not ready for a kid yet, but we're ready for something. Let's get a dog, right? So we adopted Beck off of the, uh, off of the, the, the doggy need a owner, whatever you call that. We adopted Beck. We brought him home. Well, the the weekend that we brought him home, my wife was sick that weekend. So guess who hung out with Beck all weekend long? This guy, right? Like, we did everything together. Let me tell you about my best friend, right? Like, uh, Like, I petted him. I fed him. I sat with him because he was in a new place, so he needed to make sure life was okay. And so two or three days in a row, it was just me and Beck, right? So you know who Beck's master was? Me. He did everything I said, he followed me everywhere that I went. The only one close to me that was his master was my dad. And that's because our voices sound kind of similar. Other than that, I was his master. If two people were giving him a command and he had the choice whether to obey me or them, he always chose me because I'm his master. And we are to be the exact same way with God. You see, because you see, we can't serve two masters. We will make a choice. If we're not going to serve God, we will serve something else. There's one more place I want you to go to, because this theme continues on through the end of Scripture. I want you to go to the book of Revelation. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. And what the hey, for context's sake, let's start in verse 14. Revelation 3, 14. It says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now again, this is one of the letters to the seven churches that Jesus gives out before the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as he does so, he talks to this Laodicean church. And the problem with the Laodicean church is... They have enough of Jesus to feel good about themselves, but they have enough of the world to keep themselves entertained, and they're neither cold nor hot. And because they won't decide whether they're going to really follow Jesus or really follow the things of the world, he says, I'm going to make the decision for you, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Interestingly enough, that's where we come to the verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. Interestingly, when I was a kid... I was always told that that was a salvation verse. That God is always standing at the door, knocking, waiting to get into the heart of some unsaved person. But what we really realize is that that's a verse written to a church. A church who is neither cold nor hot. A church with a divided heart. And you see, if the church has a divided heart, if a person has a divided heart, then Jesus has to stand back and say, you're going to have to choose who you're going to serve. I'm standing here knocking, and if you'll let me in, We'll make this thing happen today. But if not, then you've made your choice. And so, as we see this, there's one last place I want you to go in Scripture, because there's one great example of this divided heart in Scripture, and that's given to us in the book of First Kings, chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Thank you for bearing with my Bible Olympics. You guys are doing great. I love hearing pages turn. I can't always tell when the fingers are hitting phones, but I like hearing the pages turn. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us the end of the story of Solomon. Now, if you don't know anything about Solomon, let me give you a quick little background on Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David. You see, Israel decided they needed a king. And so God, first of all, gave them the king that they wanted, which was Saul. He looked like a king, but he wasn't really a king because he didn't have the right kind of heart. And then after God gave them the king that they wanted, he gave them the king that they needed, and he gave them David. And while David had his issues, he had one thing that was always true of him. David's heart was always for the Lord. He struggled with the flesh, but he always came back. He always repented and returned to the Lord. Well, then Solomon comes along, and God appears to Solomon in a dream. And he says, Solomon, because of your father... I am going to do something for you. You ask me for whatever you want, and you can have it. Whether it be the life of your enemies, whether it be riches, whatever you ask for it, it's yours. So Solomon said, oh, Lord God, I'm but a youth. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I need wisdom to know how to govern this great people of yours. And God said, oh, that's a good one, Solomon. Since you've asked for wisdom I'm going to give you everything that you didn't ask for. That's exactly what God did. God gave Solomon more wealth than could be imagined. He gave him more wisdom and understanding than can be imagined. And if you could have it on top side of planet Earth, Solomon had it. But in having all of those things, he forgot the one place where it came from, and that was God. Because I want you to notice what happens to Solomon at the end of his life. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, excuse me, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had seven hundred wives. Princesses and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Did you notice a word that was repeated over and over again? It was his heart. Why did Solomon follow and do all these other things? Because his heart followed after these other women. Therefore, his heart did not fully follow God. It's a problem. It was a problem that one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever had experienced in his life. and It's a problem that we deal with in our Western culture as Christians. Because the tendency for our hearts to be divided is great. Now, I've been thinking about this, and as I kind of sat and thought about it, started making a list of some things that our heart can be divided by. Now, full disclosure, this is the second time, uh, well, actually, this is the third time I've given this message. The first time I ever gave it was back in 2015, And I'm operated off the list from 2015, but I said the same thing in that message I said I started to compile a list of things that our heart can be divided by and the list got too long Well this time when I taught, I thought you know what I'm gonna make sure that I revise the list I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I make it current for today And I started making a whole new list and it was just as long and I came back and It's almost the exact same list as last time. It's almost like there's nothing new under the Sun We all just keep struggling with the exact same things. So of all the things we can struggle with, of all the things that can divide our heart, I've encapsulated it with four categories, or five categories of things that can divide our hearts. Okay? The first one is materialism. Materialism. I believe that great philosopher put it best when she said, we live in a material world and I am a material girl. (laughs) And I know this is 2023. I promise I'm not trying to say I'm a girl, okay? But but we live in a material world, right? And we are always divided by materialism, right? There's a there's a holiday coming up. Everybody know what holiday is coming up? Thanksgiving, you got it right! Christmas is coming up, right? And isn't it fast? I was thinking about this on the way up here because uh, I I was just thinking about all of the Christmas that's already been there, right? I I remember at one point in time thinking, will they ever really start doing Christmas stuff before Halloween? And the answer is yes, they will. Because it seems like we have started talking about and thinking about Christmas since September. And you're going, why? Why is it so important? It's not because everybody's excited about celebrating the birth of the Savior. It's because all of the businesses are like, we're going to make some money, right? Right? And So what do you start getting? You start getting advertisements. You get advertisements on your social media page. You get advertisements through emails. You get advertisements on your YouTube channels. You get advertisements on TV. And they're all telling you that if you want to really be happy, if you want to really be the best version of you, it's going to require this next new thing. It's going to require this next new uh, set of clothing. It's going to require this new TV. It's going to require this new air fryer. It's going to require all of these things because we live in a material world and we're all just a bunch of material girls, right? And we're always looking for the next new thing. If you really want to be happy, you'll have a new boat. If you really want to be happy, you'll have a new truck, right? Like, I always love it this time of year. And I just saw this on the Instagram the other day. They said, now comes the time of year where we see commercials where people show up out of nowhere buying their spouse a truck that they didn't ask for and without even talking to their spouse about it because they're psychotic, right? And then there's the commercial where... He buys himself and his wife a brand new car. Like 150 grand just went down on those two vehicles, and she takes the one he wanted, right? You know why? Because we're material people. And we think the next new thing is going to make us happy. Sometimes I look at the fact that we come out with new phones all the time, and I'm like, how do we come out with new phones all the time? What on earth, what on God's green earth is that phone going to do for me that it's never done before? Will it bake me dinner? If it does, I'll buy that phone. Will it do my dishes? I'll buy that phone. If it's just going to take a better picture of me, I don't like any pictures of me anyway. I don't need to buy that phone, right? (laughs) And yet we always think we need the next new thing. Why? Because of materialism. And we think happiness comes from the things that we own. And no matter how many times we see the Christmas special that says happiness comes from your family, we forget that it doesn't come from the things that we own. It comes from the giver of life. materialism divides our heart, and all we can think about is how we get that next new thing, and we work extra jobs so we can get the next new thing, and we save towards the next new thing, and then we get the next new thing, and you know what we think is? What else? What's the next new thing? I always jokingly say, men don't care what's on TV, they only care what else is on TV, right? Which is why God created remotes, or maybe Satan did, one or the other. But I'm finding that that's true of culture in general right now. We don't care what this new thing is, we care what the next new thing is, because we think happiness will come from the things that we possess, materialism. Number two is pleasure. There's actually a term for this, it's called hedonism, which by the way, sidebar, a lot of these things that I'm telling you right now, I got out of a book called Set Apart. And if you're looking for a good book to read to, to sort of go along with this idea of a heart that is fully for God, I would highly recommend to you a book called Set Apart, Calling a Worldly Church to a Godly Life. It's written by R. Kent Hughes. And I mean, it—it it is a really good book. I've read it about three times now. And I'm in the process of going through it again because I just think we so often need to hear these things. But... One of the things that can divide our hearts, number two, is is pleasure or hedonism. Now, when I was a kid, I used to always ask myself, why did the children of Israel struggle with idols? Like, I've never walked by a statue and just thought to myself, hold back, son. Do not bow down to that statue. Right? Like, like every time I go to a monument, I'm like... My desire to worship that thing is so great right now. Abraham Lincoln looks so awesome. I will (laughs) bow down and worship at the feet of Abraham Lincoln. And so I never understood as a kid, why was idolatry such a big problem for the nation of Israel? Until I found out how they worshipped idols. And I was like, oh, now I get it. Worshipping idols is just nothing but a drunken orgy. No wonder they liked it so much. No wonder they were always so into it. No wonder that was their thing. Right? It's because it appealed to the flesh. And right now in our culture, pleasure is what's worshipped. So there is a slogan for a brand that I like a lot, Nike. I know that makes me mildly on the edge because Nike is pretty liberal in everything that they do, but so is every other company. But anyway, Nike has a slogan. Everybody know Nike's slogan? Just do it. Do you know how Nike's slogan started out? If it feels good, do it. And then eventually a marketing guy was like, that's too wordy. Let's shorten it to just do it. But that phrase, if it feels good to it, do it, is the hedonistic phrase for life and that's what we've taught our culture our culture says if it feels good do it and that's exactly what we're doing we're exploring pleasure in just about every way that we can and do you know what we're finding we're finding that kids especially are going there's no happiness in this there's no joy in constantly seeking pleasure and we do it in very sinful ways And sometimes our hearts can be divided because even though we talk about it in the world a lot, sometimes it creeps into the church because we become people that end up struggling with things like pornography or illicit relationships. And it sneaks into the church and it becomes the issue within the church. And our hearts become divided because while we want to love Jesus, we want to serve our flesh. You know how else sometimes our hearts get divided with pleasure? Entertainment. Entertainment. One of the largest industries in the world. Um, I was telling the <clears throat> first service this. I said, you know what's happening after second service? Nothing, because the Chiefs aren't playing, right? And, and <laughs> because it's a bye week, so I don't care what's happening after second service because I'm a Chiefs fan, right? But, but how many people set their entire life up based upon the game, right? Last week, the Chiefs played in Germany. Why? I have no idea. Why on earth are we going to play in Europe? That's a whole other sermon all in and of itself. Why are we going to play in Europe? <laughs> And it started at 8.30 in the morning, and I thought, I wonder who I was going to miss church. And I thought, I wonder, wonder if I'm going to miss church. No, I didn't. I showed up and taught like I was supposed to. Matter of fact, I determined I am not, I'm, I'm going to turn my phone off. I'm not even going to check ESPN because our first service starts at 8.30, and that's when kickoff was. So we gather as a worship team, we play, or we play, <laughs> not yet we didn't, we pray, and I'm like, kickoff time. And they're like... What do you mean? I'm like, well, we're kicking off the service. The chiefs are kicking the ball off. Um, and so I determined I'm not going to even check the score during the, during the service. There was a teenage boy in between the service. He goes, Chiefs 21, Dolphin 0. I was like, right there, bud. Yeah. <laughs> so, but how many of us set our lives around the entertainment that we worship and our hearts are divided? I have a question for you. What's the last show that you binge watched? And I have another question for you. When's the last time you binged the Bible? You see, we all have the series that we like to watch. We all have the show that we like to watch. Matter of fact, I'm in a place right now where I, I can't even find anything I want to watch because I've binge-watched too many of them. I, I've watched too many shows, and, and, and I, I like cerebral shows. I like crime-solving shows. I like true crime shows. They say that makes me more likely to be a serial killer, but whatever. It is what it is. I enjoy it, okay? And so right now, I'm like, what do I watch? So I'm watching Psych for the fourth time, right? And, and well, At least I think that's, I've heard it both ways. Um, but that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm, One night, I'm going, this is dumb. I don't even want to watch this. I should just turn it off and read my Bible. And it's like God went, finally. (laughs) Right? Because our hearts get divided between those things. So what divides our heart? Well, materialism, pleasure. Number three, relationships. Sometimes relationships divide our hearts. We usually talk about teenagers when we talk about this. And I'm going to spend just a moment talking about that. People who are not yet married and they, they get their minds, their hearts divided because all they want in their life is a relationship. All they want in their life is that special person. And it will cause us to divide our hearts sometimes because we'll say, if I really stand strong for Jesus, that person might not like me. If I really follow Jesus, that person might not like, like me. Or the only thing that occupies all of our mind is a relationship. Listen, I've been there. I understand. And I had to repent of it and confess it to the Lord. So if you're young in here this morning and you don't have that special someone, I'm here to tell you right now, beware of a divided heart when it comes to relationships. But all of us that aren't young in here, which is the rest of us, we need to understand something. That is not just a message for teenagers. That's a message for all of us. Do you know that sometimes the relationship that we have with our spouse can end up dividing our heart? Because if we begin to put their desires over our relationship with Jesus Christ, then we end up having a divided heart, right? My, my girls used to ask me at one point in time, Daddy, who do you love the most? Do you love us more than Mommy? And I'm like, no, I, I love Mommy more than you guys. It, it, differently. I love you differently than I, than I do Mommy. They're like, do you love Mommy more or Jesus more? And I'm like, well, well I love Jesus more. And they're like, does Mommy know? Yeah, <laughs> Yes. It's, Mom, mommy knows I love Jesus more. Because if I don't love Jesus the most then I can never be the husband for mommy that I need to be. And I can never be the dad for you guys that I need to be. Because if Jesus isn't first, that means my heart is divided and I can't ever be the right person. You know, that can happen with our kids too. We can end up putting our kids in a place where only God belongs. And so we do everything for our kids. And all of a sudden, everything is about our kids. And you know what it teaches our kids? Everything's about them. And then they get into a world. And what we're dealing with right now is a world of people who grew up thinking that everything was about them. And so what do they make everything about? Them, right? And so those relationships can divide our heart. But listen, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these other things will be added unto you. And so those relationships can divide our hearts. Number four is image. Image. What kind of image am I portraying to the world? How do I look? What do people have to say about me? The world of social media has destroyed us as humans with this because we are all looking for the right image, right? Listen, I'll, I'll be honest. I've taken four selfies in a row because the first three I didn't like and the last one I'm like, eh, about as good as I'm gonna do. That one will do, All right, And I'm willing to post that one. Why do I post the one that looks the best? Because I care about my image. Because I care what people have to say about me. And then I look to see if everybody's commented on it. Has anybody liked it? And if I go a full day with nobody liking it, I'm like, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with my image, right? Because we care a lot about what people have to say about us. We care a lot about what people's opinions of us are. But listen, when it comes right down to it, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. But as we care about what people think, it oftentimes causes us to change the way that we live our lives. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, my image caused me to make really bad decisions. You see, as a freshman in high school, I came in as a kid who had grown up in Christian school, and I didn't know a ton of kids in my school. I knew a handful of them, but not very many, and so I wanted to be popular. The only way I knew to be popular was to start acting like the popular kids. Well, in order to act like the popular kids, I had to start doing the things that the popular kids did. So I changed the way I talked. I changed the way I acted. I changed the things that I was willing to do on the weekends. And so pretty soon, I didn't recognize myself anymore because my heart was divided. My heart was divided between wanting to do the right thing because I still went to church on Sunday, but also wanting the right kind of image. And I eventually had to say, What God has to say is more important. One of my favorite quotes of all time, I I quote this all the time, comes from an old football coach named Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden was a Florida State football coach. He built a Florida State football. And uh, when he retired, it was a huge deal because of the great name that he was in football. So he's in an interview, and Bobby Bowden was a really strong believer in Jesus Christ. So he's in an interview uh, with the guys from ESPN the guys from ESPN, who, by the way, if you want to know who the most liberal reporters are, the most non-Christian reporters are, they work for ESPN, okay? So, so the guys from ESPN are interviewing him, and they say, talk, uh, talk to us about your reputation. What kind of a reputation do you think you're going to leave behind? And Bobby Bowden looked at him in the way that old Southern guy could, and he said, now boys, reputation is what people say about you. Character is what God says about you. And I care a whole lot more about my character than I do my reputation. Bro, if there's a mic drop moment in any interview I've ever seen, it was that. Because those guys were stunned. But that's the way we should live our lives because our image is what everybody else thinks about us. But our character is what God knows about us. And we should care a whole lot more about our character than we do our image. But sometimes our hearts get divided because we're like, oh, I want this image. And it causes us to no longer live the way that God calls us to live. And then number five, the last one is our career. Our career. And I know that this speaks to some people because we always start off well. And a career is a beautiful thing. Work is everything godly. Like like, like work is a godly thing. The, the Puritans um, actually had this idea. It was called the Puritan work ethic. And the Puritan work ethic is that uh, carries with it the philosophy that work is a gift from God. And so it's a good thing. And you should be a hard worker because it's a part of your witness. But it always starts off with I got this good job, and I'm going to work really hard at it. But then pretty soon, to move up in the job, it requires a little bit more of your time, and it requires a little bit more of your energy, and you have to make a few more sacrifices. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But pretty soon, the sacrifices start becoming more and more. And pretty soon, your family doesn't see you anymore. Your church doesn't even know you go there anymore. And you haven't spent time with Jesus And longer than you can remember because all of your energy is spent on your job. And pretty soon your career becomes your God in your life. You know how you can tell if your career is your God? I have a question for you. Have you checked your email this morning since you've been in church? Because some people are sitting there going, oh man, I hope that deal went through. And you're checking your email. Or you're always thinking about what the next workday is going to be like. Or what's coming up this weekend work. And you can't focus on anything else except your job. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand something. There's a lesson I had to learn a really long time ago. When I first graduated Bible college, I had to go into the secular work world, even though I was doing ministry for a, for a lot of years. And, and, uh, because, you know, uh, Jesus doesn't always pay his workers, right? Sometimes we just have to volunteer our time. And so I was doing college ministry, and I was like, okay, I know I want to do ministry. That's what I want to do with my life. But I also have to pay the bills because I'm married. Or at least I was looking at getting married at that point in time. So I went in and I talked to an advisor at Johnson County Community College. I was living in Kansas City at the time. And uh, another fun name for a really strong believer. His name was Darwin Lawyer, right? (laughs) A believer named Darwin Lawyer. Everything about that. Anyway, really strong believer in Jesus Christ. I love lawyers. I'm just joking. Um, And I went in and talked to him. I explained my situation. And he said, Ryan, you need to understand something. As believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have jobs. We have ministries. Sometimes the church funds that ministry. Sometimes your secular job funds that ministry. But we have ministries. And I have never looked at work the same way since. At the time, I was working in groundskeeping. I went on to work in construction for a long time. And when I held on to that mentality, when I had the mentality that my job is my ministry, not just my job, I always had the right perspective and my heart wasn't divided. But if I ever got off of that, work became too important, and my heart began to be divided, and God had to call me, back into, call me back into play. And so there's lots of things that can divide our heart. That's a handful of the things that I have taken note of. But brothers and sisters, God is looking for believers with an undivided heart. And so as we wrap up here this morning, I want us to think about something. What do we do? What is the action that we should take? You see, I think any time that we get into God's Word and it gives us correction, we should say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? So I think that there's three things that we need to do. Three things that we need to do to have an undivided heart. Number one, we need to identify the problem. We need to identify the problem. What is it that is dividing your heart? What is it that is causing you to be divided between the things of the world and the things of God? What specifically is it that has created a divide in you? Now, sometimes we can examine ourselves and know this. Because oftentimes the problem is so apparent that a Mack truck coming at us at 50 miles an hour would be less obvious than the problem that we're dealing with, right? Right? But sometimes it's deeper than that. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing it. So I want to read a scripture for you. You don't need to turn there, but you might jot down Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Because this is what it says. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I'm a guy, even though I told you I was a material girl. Uh, I'm a guy, and as a guy, I share the same problem that every man in this room shares. We don't like to go to the doctor, right? We just don't like to go. It takes time. It might be awkward. I like to go to the doctor. I'll just diagnose it myself. I have two or three little issues that I'm dealing with right now. I've got a shoulder issue that I'm dealing with, a congestion thing that I've pretty well dealt with. like I promise I'm not contagious, um, uh, but I've had to go to the doctor two or three times about it, and I deal with acid reflux. Now, anytime I have flares up of any of those things, I do the thing that all of us as men do. I do a little research on the Internet, right? Oh, there's my symptoms. That's what I have. That's what I need to do. I'm good. I don't need to go to the doctor until our wives come to us and say, either you're making a doctor's appointment or I'm making a doctor's appointment, right? Fellas, am I right? Bear a little witness with me here. There it is. So now, why do we need to do that? Because I can't always see all of the problems in my physical body because I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV, right? And so I need to go to a specialist... I need to go to someone with the education who can look at me, who can look at my symptoms and with all of the experience say, this is what's wrong. Now, you know what the one thing it requires when I go to the doctor is? I have to be honest with my doctor. So when I go to my doctor and my doctor says, tell me some things about yourself. How's your physical activity level? Oh, pretty good. Actually, I stay pretty active. I run quite a bit. I work out a couple times a week. I do pretty good with activity. Tell me about your diet. Well, now here's where we've got problems, right? Now, I live on a steady diet of brownies and coffee and Dr. Pepper, right? <laughs> now, if I go to my doctor and I'm like, hey, my diet's really good, they're going, wow, okay, so I don't know what the issue is. I don't know why that would be causing you a problem. But then if I honestly say these are the things I struggle with, they're like, we have found our problem, right? But we have to be honest with our doctor so that our doctor can tell us what's going on. We need to come to the Lord openly and honestly and say, here I am. These are the things I'm struggling with. These are the symptoms that I see in my life. I need you to diagnose my problem. I need you to search me and know me. I need you to put my heart on trial. Identify the wicked ways in me. and then lead me in an everlasting way. Why? Because God loves us so much that he does not want to see you walk with a divided heart. Because when God spoke to the church in Laodicea, and he said, because you're neither hot nor cold, I have to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't hear the tone of an angry God ready to judge. I hear the tone of a brokenhearted God, who all he wants is for his people to be right with him, and they won't. And it hurts. And so the first thing that we do is we identify the problem. Number two, you must repent. You must repent. Write down Joel, J-O-E-L, Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is what it says. It says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. That word repent means to turn around and walk the other way. Now, I'm guessing there's a good number of us in here that have walked with the Lord for quite some time now. And you probably think the same thing that I do sometimes. Lord, I repented. I did that when I came to you. Forgetting that repentance is not just something that we do the day that we get saved. That same commentary that I read in the preacher's commentary, he had something very interesting to say about repentance. He said, repentance is not a once-done act, but the continuing daily, hourly response to the grace of God. As Spurgeon put it, repentance is not a thing of days and weeks to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime. Like faith itself, our initial act of repentance must be followed by consistently returning to the Lord. A change of mind is required from pride to praise, from self sufficiency to self surrender, from willfulness to willingness. Recently, after I had completed a message on repentance at a conference, a man said, Dr. Ogilvie, I did that as a teenager when I became a Christian. Now, do you have anything to say to, shall I say, advanced Christians? And I responded, yes, I do have a word for advanced Christians. You must repent. We never outgrow the need. In every situation, relationship, and challenge, there is a constant need to return to the Lord for guidance and power. The man's question brought to mind a woman who disliked printed prayers of repentance in the worship bulletin. Repentance is for evangelistic service, not for believers. It's for sinners. The prayer you had us pray today is like stirring up the sawdust trail. What do you have to say to that? And he said, You need to repent. Of what? the woman asked. Of self righteousness and pride. Brothers and sisters, Repentance isn't just the thing that you did when you came to know Jesus. Repentance is the way that we live our lives because we live in these bodies of flesh that are prone to the things of the world, that are prone to sin. And as we find our hearts wondering, the only thing that we need do is repent and return to the Lord. So we identify the problem, we repent, and then number three, we seek the Lord. Gosh, please go with me one more place. Back to Hosea chapter 10. I <clears throat> want you look down at verse 12 of chapter 10. It says this. So for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up the hard ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. What do we do after we have identified the problem and repented of the problem? We seek the Lord. You get back on the track of pursuing God with everything in your power. I always like to tell people the one reason why we were created. you know you were created for one main reason? Everybody's looking for the purpose in life. Everybody's looking for, why am I here on this top side of planet Earth? I'll tell you why you're here. I'll tell you exactly why God created you. He created you to know Him. He created you to seek after him. He created you for relationship with himself. God did not create you because he needed humans. He wasn't like, gosh, what am I missing in my collection? Humans, that's what I'm missing. I need some humans in my collection. No, he created you because of his deep desire for you to know him. So the greatest thing that we can do to live a life with an undivided heart is to seek God with everything that we have in us. The book of Jeremiah chapter 29 says this, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I will be found of you, says the Lord. Amen.